All right, tonight, Salvation and the Holy Spirit in the Modern Era. If you did not get a handout there on the back table back there, um, I have a lot of stuff in print um, for you. I'm going to try to walk through some of it. Some of it right at the beginning, don't worry, is review. Um, and then some of it is new material. But I thought that it would be helpful to review where we've been. Uh, I think last week's topic with Pastor Sam on Scripture and authority in the modern era is a valuable reminder, even as we consider salvation in the Holy Spirit in the modern era. So uh, what was the discussion, what was the debate centering on? Not that we necessarily had in here, but we learned from him. What was the debate centering on last week regarding Scripture and authority? You can put it in your own words. You don't have to use big terms. The modern era has been marked with, well, let's see if I can trigger your memory a little bit. Uh, The fundamentalists were accused of worshiping the Bible. Why? Why? Thinking of it as the inerrant word of the God, Lonnie? Because we gave it authority. Um, and the pushback on that is that we don't worship the Bible. We worship the one that is revealed inerrantly by the Bible. Um, the Bible is inerrant, um, is what we would say. Um, and I like to use the language that is trustworthy and authoritative. Um, And the authority of the Bible to speak to issues is derived from who it comes from and the fact that it is inerrant. If it wasn't, if it had errors, it would not be authoritative. If it did not come from God, it would not be authoritative. But the source and the way in which it has been handed from God to us is a means by which we recognize the authority and place ourselves under it. We're not going to see as much about that tonight as we talk about salvation in the Holy Spirit. There are some things relevant to that, but by and large, most of the people that we're going to look at and their thinking on salvation in the Holy Spirit aren't centering their argument on whether or not the Bible is trustworthy or authoritative or sufficient. But next week when we look at the church, There are various ways that some people would say, hey, well, we can do church however we want to. Like I saw a picture on Twitter this week of somebody, I guess it was a pastor getting to drive into his sermon in some sort of arena looking church with like flamethrowers shooting up stuff, go-go dancers. And he was driving a monster truck over some crushing cars that he was crushing. And I was like, why did I not get to be that pastor? (laughs) Like, I want to drive a monster truck over some cars. That sounds awesome. I have no clue what it has anything to do with church. Yeah, attendance would be high. I guess that's what it was. Like, yeah, you got to charge for admission on that one. So, um, but whether or not the Bible is authoritative and sufficient for how we ought to be doing church is a principle at stake in the way that we look at the modern church. But this week, I want to review very briefly because I think that some of the discussion being had in the modern era about salvation is actually rooted, and we can see some roots of that in the patristic era. So, Augustine and Pelagius. 
Pelagius, good guy or bad guy? This is participatory. Pelagius, good guy or bad guy? Bad guy. All right. Augustine, good guy or bad guy? Yes. <laughs> Relatively better by and large. Yeah. You guys didn't fall for the trap of bad guy, good guy. I tried, I tried, I tried, but you remembered something. You remembered not to call him good because there were none good but Christ. Um, so when we went through and did that, I emphasized that they were all bad guys, but some were less bad than other in their thinking and their theology. And Augustine, by and large, had some pretty valuable theology. The roots of Pelagius's thought was by and large looking at the doctrines of grace and the moral laxity in Rome. He looked in Rome and saw people that were not living as they should according to the holiness that, that supposedly God had put in them. Okay? By the way, that's something that Wesley's going to look at in our modern era and have a very similar problem with the lack of holiness of God's people. Pelagius would view God's grace as God granting the proper conditions for the right actions to occur. He viewed it as difficult but possible for people to be sinless. He taught that Adam's sin impacts humanity by being a bad example that we often follow. Contrary to that, Augustine taught that all are born in sin because they are born in Adam, referencing Romans 5. All are culpable apart from rebirth in Christ. He viewed grace as essential to be brought to life, not as an aid only in choosing what is good. And he viewed all people as sinners, and salvation was found in Christ. We get to the medieval era. We, we looked at different theories on how God brings salvation. Got some quotes there from Anselm on how God brings salvation and how the satisfaction theory of the atonement, how sin ruined humanity, and how God must be the, or Christ must be the God-man who pays God because no one can pay except God and no one ought to pay except man. So it's necessary that a God-man should pay it. Aquinas, very valuable in some other things, but talked about as he looked at ongoing sin in the life of a believer, he looks and he says, well, we need some penance, which began to be valuable in the doctrine of purgatory. Penance is a medicine for sin that the divine doctor will use to heal. Grace isn't simply imparted, it's gradually infused bit by bit as they participate in the acts of grace in the church. Okay, so he had a bit by bit mentality, a little bit different than I think Wesley's going to describe holiness, but a similar problem, slightly different solution there, but both maybe looking at it from a different side. Purgatory officially became Catholic doctrine in 1439. You got a quote there that you can read and review on it. In Salvation in the Reformation era, we, we talked about the discretion of Scripture as authoritative and in salvation and sanctification is the word I left out there, right? Luther and reformers taught salvation comes by faith of Christ alone. It's not dispensed by the church or by church leaders. The reformers viewed scripture as more authoritative than church tradition, that yet there was this unresolved debate between Calvinistic positions on divine sovereignty and human responsibility and more Arminian positions that tended to emphasize more on human responsibility. 
Um, some of those thought processes taken to more extreme positions with Arminian thought actually come in harmony with Pelagius' thought. So got some roots back in Pelagius into Arminianism, and we're going to see some further roots today. All right, so today, the modern era. Okay. I want to ask this question first. What is revival, and can we schedule it? Can we put it on the calendar? What is revival, and can we schedule it? of revival. Okay. Revival, uh, in one term, is uh, the moving of God in a massive event. And okay. Versus, uh, but yes, you can schedule a church revival mm-hmm. on the calendar, but that doesn't mean it's going to be a, a massive movement of God. Good. I like the contrast. Revival is a massive working of God amongst people, uh, drawing them to a greater sense of himself uh, by his spirit pointing to his son. Um, I think we can, we can parse out those words, but basically it's a great work of God. We can put it on the calendar. Just like we can put on the calendar a worship service, it doesn't mean worship actually happens. We can put revival on the calendar as a series of gatherings where we ask God to do things. That's the way we would understand it. But one of the contributors to the concept of revival would go a lot further about saying that we can actually basically schedule revival if we follow the right means. So the concept of scheduling revival for him wasn't just a put mark it down on the calendar for a series of gatherings at the church. It was like, hey, we follow these steps. We're going to have us a revival. And I don't mean like we're going to have us a revival because we're going to eat fried chicken three times before we gather on Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, and then Wednesday it's all going to be good. Like, no, we can, we can in his mind, you can schedule by and large, the working of God amongst people. So we'll talk about him in a few minutes and his thought process. But I wanted to get you guys on revival. Because by and large, the look that I'm going to take here in salvation in the modern era is a look at revivals and things labeled revivals or awakenings and the key, the key figures in them. Okay. Jacob. Growing up where you grew up, did you ever attend a scheduled revival? No. Elizabeth? They weren't. Uh, there were no scheduled revival services? Nobody talked about revivals. Okay. Outside the vocabulary? Who grew up attending revival services? All right, Lonnie, pastor's kid, absolutely. Lily, I did, like, we didn't always go. I don't know that the church that we attended always scheduled one every year or not. I don't remember those parts, so. Um, but some of you grew up attending annual revivals um, and their services. Oh, you guys even had the tent. Did you have the sawdust? No, it was just grass. Man, that's probably why it didn't work as well. <laughs> so. Montana, right? They're, they don't ever create a Southern Baptist. Pretty sure they all come from the South. So yeah. they bring up that revival tradition. Okay. Small town. We never did it in tent, but it was just a week long. And Every, it was like VBS, yeah. but for adults. Yeah. And not nearly as much fun. No crafts. <laughs> no, but you guys didn't have to sing with dancing either, did you? You didn't dance when you sang, did you? <laughs> okay. <laughs> 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 I 
That's only if it really worked. <laughs> we'll get there in a few minutes, too. <laughs> Thanks for bringing that one up for me. <laughs> All right. So, uh, the first great awakening. You know, it's interesting to read through different excerpts on American history and American religious history. Um, at times in when, at times in which we can look back in American religious history, and there were some very influential and godly men and women, um, and times that there seems to be a genuine work of God, and other times uh, that, as we look back, the society may not look identical to today, but the number of people actually living for the Lord was not always vast, numerous, and the grand majority. Um, If you've been reading through your Bible in a year with us, you've noticed uh, just how messed up God's people are um, throughout the pages of the Old Testament. Like, same thing happens in the New Testament really, really quickly. Like, man, the church looked really good in Acts chapter 2, but just a couple of chapters later, you got Ananias and Sapphira, and it's not going very well. Like, the history of God's people is a history of God's faithfulness with a very broken and rebellious people, uh, Old Testament, New Testament, and that we see the same thing in God's work amongst Christians in America. So at the time, in the early 1700s, around 1720, 1730, in New England, was not a bastion of great religiosity with people always following Jesus, loving him, and singing Kumbaya and holding hands. By and large, a large number of nominal in name only Christians is the thought of some of the religious leaders and the pastors of that day um, being particularly used by God in the first great awakening, largely starting around 1730s, about the timeline that that awakening begins, is Jonathan Edwards, George Whitfield, and Wesley. Several other people uh, that God used in a mighty way, but I want to talk about those three in particular. So I learned something this week. I learned that Jonathan Edwards was really tall. And I wanted to know how tall actually really tall was because it doesn't do me any good to know like really tall. I'm like, is he like seven feet tall or is he like six, three? Like what's their definition of really tall? So I'm just, was intrigued by it, but he's really tall. Jacob, do you know? PhD in church history. (laughs) I did not take the time to, to look it up. I mean, One of you will inform me in a few minutes because your curiosity is now getting you to. All right. So, but Edwards, Whitfield, and Wesley, all with a desire to see God work mightily, all preached numerous times. Um, Edwards and Whitfield in particular were very Calvinistic, very, we would look at it maybe today and think about it reform, but Calvinistic in their understanding of Scripture. Um, they would often lay out the bad news of, of eternal punishment and hell for all who do not believe and are not brought by God's grace to salvation before laying out the good news. Um, and they did so with an audience that often thought that they were already okay with God because they'd been baptized as a kid. And they were part of the church. Um, so... They saw great movement of God, I would say. But like many movements of God, there were many that questioned whether or not it was genuine. 
Is that real? Is that short term? It's like, is this like youth camp religion or is this like life change? Okay, and I say that as a former youth pastor, like, and one that saw a number of lives changed as a part of youth camp, but also a number of lives that made it like three weeks with what looked really good, um, and then others that were changed absolutely permanently. And as they did, Edwards began to think theologically, great theologian, great thinker. He explored the marks of God's spirit in converting individuals. One of his works is particularly valuable as religious affections. He noted the Holy Spirit indwells people and enables them to grow in holy conduct according to God's power at work in them. And he expected if you had this Holy Spirit inside you, your life would begin to reflect God's holiness, not perfectly, but progressively growing in holiness according to God at work in you. And that there would also be an affective emotion in it. Um, He talks about how not every emotion is a mark of God's spirit in you, but a lack of affections and desires for God was often not, according to him, a mark of salvation. Um, and, And I think there's some value in his writing. I think there might be a limit in which we can apply some of that, recognizing that what for one person is a massive change in their affections for another person who is much more restrained may not show up in that way. But I think his writing is by and large very helpful on that. Um, But just as they were cautious, I think it is valuable for us to be cautious in um, the way in which we recognize the salvation. And because when the church tends to recognize the salvation of a believer, others tend to hold on to that time as when they have been saved. So uh, uh, what I mean by that, let me restate that. I think it's valuable for churches to affirm on the basis of what we see, experience, and know over time whether or not someone seems to be a believer. But it's easy for us as a church to tell someone and affirm to them too easily, too quickly, that they are a believer, and then they hold on to what the church has told them rather than growing in their relationship with the Lord. They fall back onto, well, I was baptized in a church. Surely I'm a believer. Baptized the same day, the five minutes after I claimed Christ as my Savior. I was baptized. Must be okay with God. Like, there's some wisdom in quick baptism. There's some challenges in quick baptism um, in doing those things. So, um, By the way, I, I found this fascinating. Um, Basically, Edwards, though he grew up in a child-baptizing church and still sparked a large number of things theologically, he had this great controversy uh, uh, that he led to uh, regarding communion practices, and he was actually dismissed from his own from the church there, despite seeing a large number of people come to Christ. He was dismissed from his church due to his views on communion practice. It caused significant trials for families and others. Um, as he began to just view the marks of the Spirit of God working in a person differently. Um, and you know, gets cast out. Uh, the, the, vote, the number that I have is that 10% of the members voted to retain Jonathan Edwards. Yeah. Like, great theological thinker. I mean, can you imagine if like, I mean, I'm not going to like, totally different guy, different end of 
theological spectrum than Billy Graham. But can you imagine if Billy Graham was like a pastor and 10% of his people voted to retain him? Like, okay. Um, so. Maybe he could have led differently, but also if his role was filled with people that uh, were on the roll because they had been baptized in the church but had not been back in the church in decades and showed no marks of the work of God, that may have led to things being problematic when he identified that as problematic. So. Yeah, they didn't sign the annual covenant. And he didn't have that phrase put in there, you can't vote me out if you don't. <laughs> because you can't vote. <laughs> That's basically what it came down to. <laughs> All right, George Whitfield. Whitfield was a skilled preacher, a masterful orator, great speaker, ardent evangelist. Um, his hearers were deeply affected by him and the way that he preached. Um, tons and tons of people saw him preach. It's said that the unbelieving philosopher David Hume thought it was worth traveling to listen to him preach, um, even though he didn't agree with what he believed. Um, so marvelous speaker. Uh, he preached multiple times per day, um, multiple thousand people. Uh, there is somebody's number that it's estimated that due to his number of times that he pre- preached over several years, over 30 plus years, that approximately 80% of the colonists heard him preach. Yeah. Okay. Um, he didn't always preach within the bounds of a church by any means, uh, but laid the foundation in many cases for ch- parachurch ministries. All right, so Whitfield, a uh, marvelous preacher, tended to be Calvinistic in his theology. Wesley, more Arminian um, than Edwards, uh, he taught about prevenient grace, basically the concept that God gives a gift to everybody, enables everyone to accept or reject salvation. Wesley's goal, he looked on and he said, hey, the Christian life ought to be a life of holiness. And he began to think and teach that the holiness of God could be maybe not infused bit by bit, um, but actually imparted in a moment in a practical way. Not just in a positional way, but in a practical way. So So much so that someone could have a moment when God works in them, granting them the ability to be holy going forward. He states that he never received that himself. He never achieved perfection in holiness, but many of his followers stated that they had. Um, so they, they would deny ongoing indwelling sin, plaguing them um, and state that they had achieved holiness in their earthly life. I would not use that to be transcendentalism, um, but, yeah, um, sinless perfectionism, um, or, or perfecting holiness. They're not just perfecting holiness in the fear of God, they have perfected holiness church the part of yes. theirs they can be the yep there's some various branches of church tradition churches today that would till, still subscribe to that position that you can reach a point where you no longer sin on earth and, and it's really hard to have a church meeting with those because if they believe they're holy and 
you can't have a good discussion because because they're already perfect. Yeah. Yeah. I guess there's no need to preach on sin. <laughs> and if two of the very holy have different opinions, then oh you have yeah, to that'd split be that. Because yeah. they, one of them has to be lying. Only yeah. one of them can be holy. Yeah. Yeah. So, That's right. Uh, but that came out. And there's some roots in Wesley's thought in that, um, and the concept of holiness being perfected in the Christian life, and not just like progressively. The moment there's a mo- can be a moment when like God's like boom, now you've got it. You have superpowers, and you cannot sin anymore. Um. By and large, uh, somebody else put this put it this way that the first great awakening was by what, there were no the special method of uh, that was associated with the first great awakening was preaching outside of a church as opposed to inside a church and preaching often, but it by and large concentrated on the pages of scripture and did not deviate greatly by and large, from uh, ways in which we would desire to see Scripture preached. There were different perspectives on salvation within it and how God saves. Um, But uh, somebody else described this as ordinary means, but God worked in an extraordinary way. Um, When we get to the second great awakening, we have a different means for accomplishing awakening um, by and large not only but by and large and he is not the father of the great second great awakening Um, in fact it began prior to his preaching um, but by and large we're talking about charles finney as the second the he is the epitome of the second great awakening with his focus on methodology you could argue that whitfield Wesley and Edwards were known for their revivalism through theology. You could argue that Finney is known for his revivalism through methodology. It's a little bit, it's, it's an overstatement in both cases on that, but I think it's helpful to distinguish in that way. Um, there were protracted meetings, long meetings, that occurred along the Second Great Awakening, rather than being like a starting in New England, its frontier areas, they became further and further detached from churches, oversight, uh, the church's oversight, and theology got less and less important uh, along the Second Great Awakening. Um, and it's best seen in Finney, whose ministry emerged 1820s, 1830s, and, and beyond. He is the, regarded as the father of modern revivalism. Um, he taught that conversion was a result, not a result of the working of the Spirit of God that we cannot cause, but instead conversion is a result, by and large, of using the right means and that ministers can make revival happen by following the right means. And how did you know if it was the right thing to do? The right means, well, did it work? And how did he define if it worked? 
Anybody want to take a guess without looking ahead? Conversions. Statements of faith. <laughs> Statements of faith. How are conversions measured? Statements of faith. So, basically, the moral of the story, let's go back to the, you know, do I, I, I kind of would like to drive a monster truck into our church, like on top of cars with flames popping up. That'd be pretty awesome. And Finney would say, it worked if you got enough people there. And particularly, really, really worked if they raised their hand to say they trusted Jesus as Savior. Right? If you had to pay them $1,000 a piece, but they trusted Jesus as Savior, it worked. Great methodology. Pay them. Blow stuff up. Drive a monster truck. If it works, it's a good idea. Well, I will look at his methods and we can talk about why they might seem to work in a minute. Um, But today, if we went into our community and we're like, on Sunday, the best show in town is not the Washington football team. Like in our church, we are going to blow stuff up and drive a monster truck on the stage. You need to come to our church. We would have more people in our building. I'm going to cease calling it a church for a minute. We're going to have more people in our gathering than we would have otherwise. It draws attention. And some of the methods employed by Finney, I think, seem to make sense. It seemed to make sense for a little bit on the biblical side and a whole lot of bit on the psychological side. I'll come back to you in just a minute. I'll let Miss Nancy, if I don't answer it, raise your hand and ask me again in a minute. Finney viewed salvation largely as a matter of human effort. He did not focus on the atonement for salvation. Instead, Jesus' death showed God's love and his hatred. It didn't pay for sin. There was no sin debt that needed paid. It just showed God's love and his hatred of sin. It was a display of something about God, but not his. And, and would we say that the cross is a, a, is a display of God's love and hatred of sin? Yes. But we would say there's more to it, and he would deny that side of the necessity of the atonement. His keys. Here's his five-step method outlined by others. I've seen it put in a couple of other ways previously, but in the Holy Spirit and Salvation Uh, chapter in our book the author says here's his five-step method we're going to start with if you are feeling uncomfortable in your relationship with God you're not certain that you've trusted Jesus as your savior if you were to die tonight and you were to stand before the presence of almighty God if you're not 100% certain that you would be going into heaven you need to come up here and sit on this bench in front of everybody that's the first step we're going to get everybody on the front anxious bench for those that are anxious in their relationship with God. Then his appeal at the altar call moment of invitation is focused on immediate submission, called upon people to kneel and commit themselves to the Lord, committing to doing whatever God required, and then publicly coming forward and renouncing sin and giving self to Jesus. 
Okay? A lot of those steps look somewhat familiar to those of you that have been in churches that have done an altar call before. I don't, I'm not against almost all of those steps. I don't really like the first one. The other ones I don't think are necessarily bad. But how do you think it, just from a psychological perspective, sheerly psychological perspective, how much do you think that putting somebody on the anxious bench at the beginning of the service contributes to their willingness to respond at the end? <laughs> yeah, I can't imagine somebody in today's culture being like, yeah, put me on that bench. But different culture, different time. Okay. His methods, by his measurement, worked marvelously. So he wrote the guide to revival. This is how you do it. And if you work hard enough as a church and as a minister, you will see revival happen. And if you don't, it's your fault or your pastor's fault that your church is not experiencing revival. The, the pressure becomes on man. Becomes on us as believers to convince people. Becomes on pastors to make sure that the right amount of conversions happen. Okay? By the way, the, the impacts of his concept uh, and his emphasis on man bringing revival and mankind producing results has probably resulted in a huge number of pastors being fired for what would otherwise, in many cases, be faithful ministry. The source of, we have numbers of conversions, you know, for each year as a judge of a church's effectiveness. And does every person count to God? Absolutely. Does every person count to us? They should. Should we long for God to bring in new people into a relationship with him, striving that others might see our good works and glorify God by turning to him in the Spirit's power. Absolutely. Can we produce believers? No. Can we be used by God in the believers and believers being brought to him? Absolutely. Right? But Finney was really on one side of this equation. Although when he was really on one side of this equation... He wasn't that far after William Carey, who in 1792 wrote his pamphlet on his inquiry, his rationally thinking through Scripture, that people actually have a reason, an obligation to proclaim the gospel to heathens. Okay, So when Finney said this, He's only 40 years afterwards, after William Carey had to write to the church and say, you actually should tell people about Jesus. So it's not as unthinkable as we might think. All right. Ms. Nancy, did I somewhat get around to answering your question on why it might work? It would not work for me. I'd be horrified. 
Yeah, you would be horrified. I'd be like, man, this is kind of cool. Like, but then others, like others do grand theatrical productions. I have nothing against a grand theatrical production. Um, but around Christmas time, I, I saw a church that was doing some really cool, fascinating stuff. And I, I'm, I, from what I saw in some of their gospel presentations, I think they did a reasonable job getting it right. Um, but like they had this massive sanctuary and their, their drummer boys were like on wires in this 5,000, 10,000 seat sanctuary. And they're like wired up and they're like being, they're zipping through the air towards the audience while playing their drums as part of their Christmas production. Like, that is a new level of tech. Um, so pretty cool. Very much on par with sight and sound. Um, for those that have been to it, uh, as a part of a church. like, but, And to the best I can tell, I think the pastor reasonably got the gospel right from what I saw on that. So I'm not, not grieving it, but I am saying it would be pretty cool. And for some that really enjoy the theatrical side of things, that would be a great draw um, for them and a good opportunity to proclaim the sufficiency of Christ. But as one of my mentors said, what you win them with is what you win them to. Um, and it's hard to top that each and every week. Um, so it requires the Spirit of God to still convert them and to remind them that you don't come to church for theatrical performances, but to grow in the Lord and to fellowship with each other. So. All right. Though Wesley um, did call people to repent and believe, he had a much more Pelagian view of man's ability to repent and believe. Didn't necessarily require the Spirit of God to do that, not Wesley, uh, Finney, sorry. Finney, he had a more Pelagian view of man's ability to repent and believe than Whitfield or Edwards did. It was more like, hey, repent and believe. I can convince you of this. You can come about this on your own. doesn't require the Spirit. In the first Great Awakening, results were normally, and by and large, Edwards was saying, hey, let's measure results over time. Let's take some time. Let's measure results over time. The second Great Awakening Man, they were putting it in the telegrams the next morning. They were ready to say, well, we're confident of this one. And one of the things that was troubling about the Second Great Awakening is the number of people that converted to Jesus that three months later had no life change, no difference. And if I'm remembering right, Finney referred to those areas where that happened in, in mass as burnt over areas where there was no further room for the gospel to grow. Um, the seeds of revival had just burnt over them and there was no room there. So, um, First Great Awakening measurements over time based upon life change. Second Great Awakening measured in a moment based upon statements of faith. The social gospel. Almost didn't deal with this, but I think there's, this is still impactful, particularly in less evangelical churches. Um, and the roots of this can be attractive even in some evangelical churches today. So he wrote a book called A Theology for the Social Gospel in 1917. He focused on overcoming systemic evil in society through sacrificial service to others. He saw the cross of Christ as identifying with the lowly under oppression, and the job of the church was social change. Uh, 
that could be really attractive today to those that have spent their time and energy and been fed a victim mindset that they are a victim of power structures and culture and that they cannot experience victory apart from upheaval of societal structures. I'm not denying that there are victims in society. I'm not denying that Jesus, particularly in the Gospel of Luke, shows a particular proclivity to attach himself to outcasts. But the, and the gospel has social implications. But it is not social in its origin. It is what God has done in Christ for us. As 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4 says, that he died for our sins according to the scripture and he rose from the dead. There are implications for how we live in society, but what... Rauschenbusch and those that followed him didn't really want to deal with sin, and it was a sinful society. If we're going to talk about sin, like, we, we, you know, it's a messy society. There's powerful people. They oppress people, and the job of the church is to identify with Jesus, who was a servant of the lowly, and be a servant of the lowly and change society. Typo in this next one, Pentecostalism does not trace its roots to the 19,000s, but to the early 1900s, speaking in an unknown tongue in both Kansas and Los Angeles, seeds in Kansas blew up in Los Angeles in the Azusa Street revivals. New denominations arose, placing an emphasis with Pentecostalism on the second baptism of the Spirit, marked by speaking in tongues. And what they mean by that is almost always unknown languages. Differentiated from Pentecostalism, charismatics also focusing on the Holy Spirit and supernatural gifts such as but not limited to and not always marked in the life of a believer by speaking in tongues. Also other spiritual gifts such as powers, prophecy, and other supernatural, big-seeming gifts, the gifts of miracles um, associated with the charismatic tradition as marks of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. All right, this is a statement, and that's why I use the word my opinion, and I probably should have underlined it. Um, It's in my opinion that the hard work and the daily surrender that should mark our work with Christ by the Spirit's power for progressive sanctification, growing in holiness according to the fear of God, walking and pursuing holiness daily in progressive views of sanctification have instead been replaced with a fascination with the immediate and the miraculous for those that espouse perfectionist views and those that tend to take Pentecostal charismatic views. Fascination with the immediate and the easy rather than a, is it Peterson that says that discipleship is a long walk in the same direction? I think it is. 
Yeah, it's up here. Long obedience in the same direction. Yeah. Rather than a long obedience in the same direction, according to the power of the Spirit of God at work in us, man, sign me up for the immediate. Not even the microwave version, like the immediate version of sanctification. And the attractiveness of the miraculous spiritual gifts. And we have the rise in, the explosive rise of those that have a Pentecostal and charismatic denominational background and in those types of churches in the 20th century. Explosive growth. Um, You could easily refer to it as the third awakening. What cleans up the tongues? Do they make it of themselves or what? For those that speak in tongues, they speak in tongues according to how they deem that God is directing them to do so. I can't vouch for it. I have it spoken in tongues. I can't even speak in Spanish. Um, Barely English. Um, But they practice that and would, in many cases, deny, some cases, deny the salvation of those that do not. Well, God, God understands it. Yeah, God understands it, or some would practice interpretation um, in their churches. There, there are more egregious violations of what I would call a biblical biblical requirement regarding tongues there are more egregious violations of that and less egregious violations of that and more consistent with what the bible may allow and less consistent with what the bible may allow regarding speaking in tongues in various church traditions and even amongst those people in those individual churches so it's impossible to put a one-size case, one-size-fits-all garment and description to hundreds of millions of people that currently would be characterized as Pentecostal or charismatic. So, um, I provide you here um, the outline of what I did uh, about a year and a half ago on the Holy Spirit from our Growth Institute. I've got you the outline there. If you want to go back and find the videos for that, uh, I've got about two hours of teaching on the Spirit that goes through most of the things, who the Spirit is in addition to what the Spirit does, but because I thought that the bulk of the questions as we kind of got to this point would be on what does the Spirit really do, I left, by and large, what the Spirit does on your note packet for today. Okay? So some things with Scripture that the Spirit does throughout there. Um, and I wrapped up that lesson, and I'll cover this one briefly again in here, um, was what does the Bible teach about the Spirit and tongues? Um, I, I think from the basis of what I see occurring within the concepts of Scripture, we have that at times, particularly in Acts chapter 2, at Pentecost, tongues was 
known languages. One speaker speaking, multiple people understanding it in their own language. Okay. Um, so in our world, that would be, I'm up here, I'm speaking what I think is English, but our Spanish speakers hear me in Spanish, and our Ethiopians hear me in Amharic, and I, you guys that only speak English, hear me in English, and I'm speaking at one time. Okay. That seems to be what occurred in Acts chapter 2. Okay. The original speaking in tongues Pentecost event was known languages. That does not normally occur within Pentecostal traditions. By normally, I mean almost never. Um, other places we do see in Scripture a prescription for how if tongues were going to be spoken in the, in the church in Corinth, how they should have interpreters. But for those that want to claim that speaking in tongues should be normal for the Christian church and the tradition today, it's really odd that only the people in Corinth needed instruction on this and no other New Testament church needed any level of instruction on speaking in tongues. Um, so it, my perspective on that one is, huh, those people at Corinth were kind of weird in a lot of ways. This is another way they were kind of different than the rest of the New Testament church. It's just odd that there's no other instruction on it, okay? Paul does describe, uh, and some would say that they practice a, a private prayer language and they speak in tongues while praying. Um, I have more people that I respect and know in this camp than in the two previous ones. I don't know anybody that has claimed to speak in tongues in the way that Acts chapter 2 happened. I don't really know and have a great deal of respect for those that practice it like speaking in tongues interpretation side of things. I do know, and there are a large number of Baptists that would say they have a private prayer language, and they're people that I deeply respect. Um, I don't. It wouldn't be private if I did, but I don't. Um, I, I don't have a private prayer language. Um, and the way that I see what spiritual gifts actually are in the Bible, I would not, if you do have a private prayer language, I wouldn't see that as a spiritual gift because it isn't for the serving of the body of Christ, which is what a spiritual gift is for. So could the Spirit do that? I would absolutely say if it's not sinful, the Spirit could do it, but I don't think it's a spiritual gift because spiritual gifts are for the serving of the body of Christ, and you praying in private isn't necessarily doing that. And I, I don't see how that really works, but I'm, I, I'm not going to say it can't work. So... Um, if any of you watching or in the room have a private prayer language, at, man, keep that between you and Jesus. Just make sure that it's like according to Scripture and legit. And I would encourage you, as Paul does, to pray in your mind that you would know how God is working in your life and call out to him in that. Right? And I think much of what can fall under the language of speaking in tongues can be of human or even demonic origin. They could just focus on the spotlight rather than the one that the spotlight is shining on. Uh, in that series on the Holy Spirit, and I think I left you the quote in here, the Holy Spirit, yeah, the Holy Spirit's like a spotlight in the pages of Scripture. He doesn't ever point to himself. When he shows up on the scene in the New Testament, he's always pointing out Jesus. Uh, somebody else described him as Jesus' hype man. Okay? He's just always, man, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. How do you know it's a Holy Spirit-filled service? Well, when people leave talking about Jesus. If it's a Holy Spirit-filled, filled service and people leave talking about the Holy Spirit, it probably wasn't the same Holy Spirit in the Bible. 
Because every time there was a Holy Spirit service in the Bible, people left talking about Jesus. Um, so when we have people leave just talking about the Holy Spirit and the, the great effects of the Holy Spirit, it doesn't seem to be what the Spirit does most of the time in the pages of the New Testament. But there's been an explosive growth on that. I gave you an article on Pentecostals and Charismatics, uh, their origins, uh, a little bit of differences. Some within both of those camps are associated with the prosperity gospel, but that isn't just related to those two camps. That can come out of anywhere, and it is a grand heresy that has very little to do with the Bible. Um, but I thought it was a helpful article. And I think there's some ways in which the conclusion of the article can be helpful. Um, but I think there's also, there's a limit to the association with those. I mean, we run into somebody that's all the time focusing on the, the power encounter that they have with God and doing a bunch of those things rather than concentrating on the gospel and what Christ has done for them. Um, that it would be hard to recognize that as biblical Christianity and associate with them as fellow believers. Um, But there are others along this spectrum that uh, certainly I think I would call a believer. I would say that they view biblical issues that I think are sufficiently clear in the pages of Scripture different than me. So I'm not going to say that there are no Pentecostal and charismatic believers, but I'm not going to say everybody that is Pentecostal and charismatic is a believer. Questions? I'll take them for maybe two minutes and then we'll break. I always thought that when, at the time of Pentecost, when they were hearing different languages, that the people speaking, speaking their own language... But the people who were here were here in their Yeah. Mm-hmm. That seems to be the biblical picture. Peter's standing up, and he's doing his normal Peter accent, you know, um, using his fisherman lingo, and they're hearing it in their own language. Nobody walked away in Acts being like, man, what was Peter saying? Any other questions? Book recommendation for you if you want to study revivals and their impact on society. uh, Dow and Reed have a book out called Firefall 2.0. There's an original as well. I think 1.0 was, well, it wasn't 1.0, but it was just Firefall. um, That I do recommend as a history of revivals, the way in which God used young people in revival, uh, the marks of revival, the methods of revival, and all those things pretty good book not a super short read if i'm remembering right maybe 300 350 pages all right let's pray god thank you for your grace i thank you that you rescue us from sin according to your power according to your spirit and you hold on to us for your glory. God, would you help us to think rightly about you and about your spirit as you 
and your manifestation of your work in our world today. And God, where we are prone to get things wrong, would you show us and give us humility? God, where we are prone to be arrogant and harsh, would you show us that and help us to walk in your grace and mercy? And where you long for us to declare truth and stand for it, would we do so firmly? God, would you help us to honor you as we progress in holiness because of our fear of you, because of our love for you, because of your power at work in us, because of the precious blood of Christ, would we walk in holiness imitating you and your surrendering to your power? And God, would you help our church to see sinners saved by grace and sustained by your power? Would you help us get to rejoice in that? Grow us in number as you desire. Grow us in faithfulness because we know you desire that. It's in your name we pray. Amen.